This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense every week of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I'm back in the studio, in other words, here in Milan, uh, working frantically on my book, The Last Best Chance. Uh, We'll talk a lot more about The Last Best Hope, which is a quote from Lincoln, of course, during the Civil War. Um, It's going to be a history of American realism, but this is a very political book. Its, its design is to make a dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs would say. It's to unite the warring factions of the Republican Party around a realist foreign policy they can all live with, meaning the Jeffersonian kind of quasi-renegade uh, group in Washington that's been around for a long time that believes in restraint in foreign policy with the Jacksonian Trumpist base of the party. The Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians do naturally align around realism, And so to make this work, I've looked at the fact that realism is an organic reality in American life. I'm going to do as I always do, like Homer tells stories, looking at the precepts that really define realism organically in the American experience, some great stories, uh, things like George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, uh, William Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State, avoiding a war. As Lincoln said about fighting the British, we need one war at a time. Um, little-known figures like William Bora that we're going to try to Tarantinoize and make famous again, and then heroic figures like Franklin Roosevelt, who, although on the left domestically, certainly was a realist in his foreign policy and is an unsung realist hero. And we're going to weave this American tapestry together, ending with the American exceptionalism that unites everyone and Ronald Reagan's very sunny and devastatingly effective look at what that exceptionalism means in practice. And then once we outline what it is to be a realist, looking at these precepts and their organic role in American history, the last step will be to say, if you believe all these things, you deal with the world that we find ourselves in today, to forward project what we've learned historically, which is what we do here in our community all the time. I'm so excited to be working on this. We're keeping to our punishing schedule. Uh, The final copy has to be done by September 3rd, and we're frantically racing to meet the deadline while keeping the quality up. But so far, I'm incredibly proud of what we've done. I'm a little over halfway there. And next month, I have to write two chapters. So nose to the grindstone before we head off to San Francisco for a keynote and a war game late in the month. And then in June, we go to the Koch Foundation, the Stand Together Alliance, and do a chapter. Really, it's the starting gun on selling the book, which ought to be out in time for the Iowa caucuses. We want this to be part of the political discussion in the party for the next generation. And we want realism to be the glue that binds the Republican Party's foreign policy for the next generation. And really, the starting gun is in June. So busy and heroic and exciting times ahead. But as always, I will keep to our once a week schedule wherever I am. And today I want to talk about the Kennedy rule still applying. The West needs to wake up to the reality that the developing world is not with it. And uh, I've just, I'm just finishing notes on the chapter I'm going to write for the book on John F. Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis, looking at the key realist precept that you have to avoid the noise and focus on the essential. And Kennedy, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, was so good at doing this, at focusing on the two basic goals that he wanted, to stop the political disequilibrium that came from the Soviets lying and installing intermediate nuclear weapons in Cuba, which destabilized politically the world order, devastatingly for the United States if those missiles hadn't been gotten out, and at the same time also 
to stop a nuclear war from happening. And Kennedy held to this realist precept, only worry about primary interests, let everything else go. Uh, a saying we have in our household, Sarah and I and the kids and the cats is one crisis at a time. Bobby, because when all this was going on in Cuba, China chose to invade India and uh, Bobby Kennedy was concerned about this and Jack Kennedy very coolly and cerebrally, as only Kennedy could do, said back to Bobby, one crisis at a time, Bobby. We say this in the household to say, in essence, let's worry about the most important thing first and then we'll let the rest happen as it happens. And Kennedy was a master at focusing amidst all the noise, the paranoia, and the panic over the Cuban Missile Crisis about these two basic goals, one, getting those missiles out to ruin the political destabilization of the world, and two, avoiding Armageddon, a nuclear war. And everything else was secondary to that goal by Kennedy. And it's a really exciting chapter in our book about the young president. But this is another Kennedy story, and in the research I came upon this again. I've mentioned this in passing before. Uh, John Kennedy used the immense wealth of his father, who was one of the richest men in America. By today's standards, he would be a billionaire in dollar terms. And he wasn't just a spoiled rich kid. He chose to use this money to educate himself. And in the 1950s, when he was a senator, a job he didn't much like, he traveled all over the world using his dad's immense wealth to, in effect, go on fact-finding missions. And he saw much of what was then called the third world the developing world, the emerging markets of the world, and he saw them firsthand. He visited places like India and South Korea and Vietnam to try to get a sense of what was going on in the rest of the world. And indeed, Kennedy helped make his name as a young senator by talking very differently after having had this experience about the war in Algeria, the colonial war where the Algerians were trying to throw off the yoke of French colonialism. And unlike the kind of standard foreign policy blob view of the time, Kennedy said, no, if we side with French colonialism, which is dying, just straight realism, he's not saying one is better or not better, one is moral, one is immoral. The Algerian government that followed certainly was not a paragon of morality being a one-party state, nor was French colonialism. So Kennedy left the morality at the door, blessedly, back when Democrats did this, and instead said, look, French colonialism is dying. The emerging world is the coming force in the world. We want to be on the side of the anti-colonialists because they are the future, and French colonialism is the past, and we may need these allies in our contest with the Soviet Union. The more allies you have in terms of the global balance of power, the better. So let's not just in a brain-dead foreign policy blob, Council on Foreign Relations manner, side with old-style French colonialism, because we always have. Let's look anew at what the future is, which is the developing world, and side with them. And this was a radical departure at the time. And Kennedy, really a first-rate thinker, cool, cerebral, dispassionate, a world-class realist. I come away from my work on the, on the missile crisis, and I've been taking notes for about a month now, um, just with an increased sense of appreciation for what Kennedy was about. And this Kennedy rule still applies, and in effect applies more in the new era we live in. Because in the old Cold War era, in essence, it, the world really was bipolar. My favorite author probably of the 20th century is the English novelist Graham Greene. I think the most underrated author and probably one of the best, I mean, you'd argue Hemingway from my point of view and some others, Fitzgerald perhaps, though he certainly didn't have a long track record. Gatsby is almost 
perfect. Hemingway wrote some fantastic books and really reinvented how to use the English language. But for my money, Graham Greene is probably the novelist of the 20th century. But I will freely admit that every Graham Greene novel can really be put into an archetype that I can explain in about a paragraph. A middle-aged, somewhat disappointed, disillusioned English colonial, probably an alcoholic and lovelorn, falls in love with a local woman and is screwed over by the Soviets or the Americans or both. And the reason that Graham Greene kept writing this tragedy over and over again was really a lament for the passing of British dominance in the world, that no longer could the British make their own agency, that instead they were to some extent the victims of whatever the Americans or the Soviets decided to do. And you see this in Greene's successor, direct successor, John le Carré, who was, um, like Greene, in many ways, anti-American, uh, because simply it goes back to Suez. He doesn't like that the British are no longer running the world. But Greene was on to something, that both the Americans and the Soviets so dominating the emerging world, the developing world, that they really had little agency and really had to go along uh, with whatever happened. The Kennedy rule somewhat applied in his era, but applies entirely in our era. And that's because the world is not so strictly bipolar anymore, that the other there are many other countries around the world with a lot of room to run with a football, that beneath the bipolarity of the Sino-American contest for superpower domination, which is real, as we've said before, there are a number of great powers with an awful lot of room to either side with one of the two superpowers or go its own way in a neutralist way, a neutralist nationalistic way. In effect, that's what President Macron has been fumbling to do with the French, but can't manage it because they're not important enough, as we talked about. But certainly underneath the Americans and the Chinese, there are the Russians, the Japanese, the Indians, the UK Anglosphere, and the EU that can either side with one of the two superpowers or go its own way. But then beneath them, at the next level down, you really get to where the Kennedy rule applies. You have the regional powers of the world with an awful lot of room to make their own waves in a way that they simply did not in the Graham Greene era of the Cold War. And you see that above all in the, in the instance of the Ukraine war, that one of the facts that almost is not discussed at all in the West, and again, in the Council on Foreign Relations, one of the things when I wrote um, Ethical Realism with Anatole Levin that we strongly agreed on is the foreign policy establishment of the United States thinks it can still tell the rest of the world what to do and that its orders will broadly be followed. In other words, it still has, despite all the talk about its learning, very little learning has gone on, it still has very much a Cold War mentality that they can simply tell people what to do. The neocons may say they can tell people what to do and bully them, and the liberal Wilsonian hawks may think that they can charm the rest of the world into doing what they want. But bottom line, both sides still think both utopian schools of thought, the Wilsonians and the neocons, still think the world is made in their image and they can pretty much tell people what to do. Only realists hew to the Kennedy rule and know better that countries will only side with the United States when their interests and values line up behind it. Primarily interests, but also to some extent values, line up behind the Americans rather than the Soviets. And a key fact of the Ukraine war is that nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world the developing world is not with the United States. Nine of the 10 are neutral, despite all the browbeating and despite the United States saying self-evidently Ukraine is a force worth fighting for, despite being a corrupt oligarchy, kleptocracy with no ties to the United States, 
that we've made them in kind of a heroic image of the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, a la Hemingway, into something they're not. And then we kind of expected the rest of the world to follow behind us. And that's not what's happened at all, despite the always wrong FT saying so, and the always wrong economist, and the always wrong Chatham House, the establishment, Council on Foreign Relations, Washington Post, New York Times, has blithely ignored the reality that, yes, Western Europe is now more behind the United States than before, but nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world, the developing world, is very much not with the United States over Ukraine, or indeed is largely or broadly neutral over the Sino-American Cold War. And who do we mean? Who are we talking about? Who are these nine of 10? I want you to visualize them. And I don't want us to ever just think in abstractions. That's what utopian schools of thought do. Realists focus on the particular. And particularly, we mean countries like AMLO's Mexico, Lula's Brazil. We mean Argentina, Erdogan's Turkey, uh, MBS's Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, India, which although it sides with the United States in the Indo-Pacific, is very much neutral in the global world and indeed is buying as much oil as it can from the Russians at a discounted price as fast as it can, as well as getting a plurality of their weapons still from the Russians, though our kit is much better and that percentage is growing. You have China, you have the ASEAN countries. So all around the world, you have neutralism in the developing world and not the developing world siding with the United States. South Africa is another country that would fall into this basket. And for the West, it's self-evident to help Ukraine, but for the rest of the world, it's not. Well, there are a couple of reasons for this. One, as we've said, while much of the rest of the world might lean as India does uh, toward the United States or uh, the ASEAN countries do in the Indo-Pacific for security, at the same time, China is almost always their biggest trading partner. So while they are dependent to some extent and rely on the United States with, for their security, they rely on China for their trade. That reality of their own specific interests, the interests of the developing world, which are totally ignored in the council and the rest of Washington as though they were only a minor consideration, where in this more multipolar world, their interests fundamentally matter. And until we look at their interests, we're not gonna find ways to work with them, nor are they going to wish to work with us. They're going to hedge, which is the smart play. If all your trade is with China and all your security is with America, don't, they're saying, don't make us choose. Um, we need a genuine trading policy for the rest of the world. And at the moment, the United States has two protectionist parties. And this is a catastrophe because as long as the trade is with China and the security and to some extent the investment come from the United States, you're going to have a world that says, don't make us choose a neutral world that will not be siding with the United States. And this is a huge problem. Secondarily, much of the developing world has ties to the Russians going back to the Soviet Union and Nikita Khrushchev's effort at wars of national liberation. When the Soviets tried to draw close to countries like Congo, like India, with which they had a long-standing relationship, India led the non-aligned movement in the Cold War and is still seen as a fundamental, you know, when I go to India, it's interesting because the ties they have with the Russians go back generations. I'm very much the new kid on the block. And so these longstanding ties of the developing world mean that they're likely to hedge as well. And India is just a great case in point. It wants to get its security from the Americans. It hates that it trades with China, which is bullying it along the line of actual control. And it wants to buy cut price oil and military wherewithal from its longstanding friend, Russia, 
going back to the Cold War, that all that bouillabaisse of interest makes for neutralism uh, globally. And that's what we're going to get. And India, as the largest now, the most populous country in the world, the only great power that's actually rising because its demography is so good. The average median age in India is 28. The median age in the United States and China is 38. India is going to grow at 6% a year this year, more than 6% next year, according to the IMF, more than 6% for the next 20 years. It is the rising power. Its economy will likely be the third largest in the world after the U.S. and China by 2050. And it, although it sides with the United States more and more in the Indo-Pacific, is neutralist globally. Because the last reason, beyond their specific interests and beyond their trade with China, that these countries want to remain neutral is that, like all rising powers, regional powers, they don't want to be in the pocket of either superpower. Why in the world would you be when you're rising? You want as much autonomy as humanly possible. And that means you don't follow lockstep behind either superpower and give up your agency. Why in the world would you? This is simply realist math. This would be true of any rising power in the world at any historical period. And it remains true now. So this is what the United States is up against, that while it blithely assumes everyone is behind it and then is shocked, shocked, gambling goes on in the casino, as was said by Louis Renault in Casablanca. The U.S. is shocked, though it shouldn't be, that somehow the rest of the world is neutralist for all these reasons. Well, what should the United States do? Obviously, in the new era, the superpower with the most allies is likely to do the best and be the ordering power. And here the United States still has a decided advantage. At the great power level, you have India, as I said, within the Indo-Pacific on America's side and neutral more broadly, but you have on side the UK Anglosphere, the EU after the Ukraine invasion, Japan is entirely on side with only Russia now Robin to China's Batman. And that's a constellation of forces that favors the United States. However, Everything is still to play for because at this developing world level, you have neutralism. You have them hesitating. You have them saying, uh, we want to hedge. We don't want to choose between the two of you. So one of the goals of the new era for whoever the next president is will be to apply the Kennedy rule again, to see that the developing world is the future. This is where most of the world's future economic growth is going to come from. And critically, also, where much of the world's future strategic wherewithal will matter, that this is what's to play for. So the first thing the United States has to do in applying the Kennedy rule is to stop assuming it has to get real. It has to stop assuming that the developing world, a la Graham Greene, will just fall into lockstep behind it, because that's not what's happening at all. And we need to face reality square in the face or we're not going to get anywhere. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is we have to assume that other people have interests too, that it isn't just the United States that has interests, but everybody else has them as well. And that as a result of this, we have to see what their interests are, mitigate when we disagree with them, and find interests in common and work together on the basis of those interests. The more work we do together on the basis of these interests, the better. For instance, India is going to need an awful lot of investment. This should be a no-brainer for the United States with a global power growing at 6% a year who wants to do more with the West. More investment with India, more trade with India, be this commercial trade, be this military wherewithal, more strategic ties with India through the Quad, where we have a common enemy in a rising China, where we want to economically help influence the direction India heads in, 
which is a no-brainer because it's growing at such a high percentage, we should walk through the open door. India is only a strategic opportunity. It's not a problem. The developing world as a whole is a strategic and economic opportunity, not a problem. But the West has to grasp it. And the Kennedy rule still applies. So let's find out what their interests are, work on the basis of them, do more and more with them commercially, economically, and strategically, and we will find the world coming a, a fascinating, beguiling place that's booming, where the West is broadly allied with the developing world on the best basis of an alliance, common interests. If we do that, the Kennedy rule, which matters more than ever, will be seen to. Thanks very much. I enjoyed doing this one as we continue our Get Real series. In this case, the Kennedy rule still applies. The West needs to wake up to the reality that the developing world is presently not with it and find ways to change that. Thanks to so many of you who've subscribed. Again, our community is booming, and I'm incredibly grateful for this as I frantically work on The Last Best Hope. Uh, this is wonderful, and I love thinking aloud with you all. And so many of you are such ardent fans of the podcast. It's, it's fantastic. Um, for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking for $70 a year, $7 a month, or $70 a year to give you this cutting-edge, futuristic, but entirely grounded in reality, state of the world, where we are, and more importantly, where we're going. The best political risk you can buy for $7 a month. And on that basis, I'm off to my espresso. Have a great day.